You know, there on the wall of the United Nations, many of you have been there, there's this wall with this verse on it from Isaiah 2. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spheres into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, the implication of them putting on their wall is that they're saying the United Nations are going to pull this off. I want to tell you there is not enough peacekeeping forces in the world to make this happen. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Daniel and in a message from chapter 2 entitled, Dreams Do Come True. Last week, we saw the young prophet Daniel interpret for King Nebuchadnezzar a dream which consisted of a large statue comprised of various metals and stone compounds. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy as he goes through the various parts of the statue, picking up at the statue's thighs of bronze. And if you know anything about Grecian soldiers, you know that the poet spoke of the bronze, brazen-coated Greeks. Bronze is an excellent symbol of this Greek empire. Now, it's not as valuable as silver or gold. And of course, if you know anything about Greece, they're not as strong as Medo-Persia. Why? Because they lack administration. And because they lack administration, good administration, I suppose much like modern Greece, they end up crumbling to the next world power. Verse 40 describes the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. Let me read it to you. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Here it is pictured again. This kingdom is symbolized initially by iron. Repeated over and over and over again, iron. And so we speak every childhood Grammar school child who studies Roman history has heard of the Iron Legions of Rome. And of course, 50 years before the birth of our Savior, Rome comes into power, they take over Greece, and they rule for over three centuries. They are a very strong nation. This is a nation, of course, that puts the Lord Jesus on the cross. But I find it very interesting to note that this fourth empire begins with legs of iron, but it concludes with feet of both iron and clay. Look at verse 41. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. What is he saying? He's saying this empire will start incredibly strong, but it will gradually be weakened. Look at verse 42. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. So it turns from two legs of iron that verse 33 notes that would have described the eastern and western portions of the Roman Empire. Remember, they're not a power yet. At this point, they're just a, a little tribe by the Tiber River. They're virtually non-existent. They're, they're, it's about the size of Yemasi. I mean, there are nothing people, but God is writing the future ever before it happens. Not that the people in Yemersi are nothing. Forgive me if you're from Yemersi. But here, uh, point five, uh, next slide here, we, we see the feet of iron mixed with common clay. So it's strong at, at its inception, but it begins to weak. 
Now, question. Did the Roman Empire ever divide into ten parts? No, it did not. Never. History records no such thing. And yet Daniel is describing a tenfold division of this empire. And that's why I say, as the next two visions in the 7th and 8th chapter will underscore, there are four nations that are in view. But this fourth nation will basically be what we call Rome 1 and Rome 2. Rome initially, but then a coming revived Roman empire that is still in the future. You say, how do you get that? It's very clear from the Scripture. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically that sometimes in a verse of Scripture, God will give uh, a prophecy with a gap of time between it. He'll lump together two prophecies in one verse. And I'll give you many illustrations of that before we're done, but let me just give you one that is familiar to many of you, Isaiah 9. Because we read it at Christmas, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we say, oh yeah, that's Christmas. That's the incarnation. But we don't typically quote the next verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government of, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Why don't we quote that verse? Because it fills out verse 6. And when Jesus came the first time, the governments of this world did not rest on his shoulders. That will not happen until he comes again. And so between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 2.41, there's a gap of time. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this out. All you have to do is keep reading. But let's first read verse 43. And then that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another, these ten toes, these ten nations, and the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the Roman Empire that begins with iron begins to regress into a state of clay mixed with iron, and it progressively gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then he describes these ten toes that are mixed of iron and clay. Now, if you take iron and you bring it to its heating point and it melts, and you take clay and you turn it into a liquid, and you pour them together in one mold, they will not become a stronger alloy. Now, some, some metals, you can take two metals, and you mix them together, and what's the resultant is a stronger metal. But the cast will be brittle. The iron, when it cools, will not mix with the clay. And so he's describing this coming ten-nation empire that is brittle, but it is held together, notice, by the seed of men. Now, we're going to come to that. That's important. Through intermarrying that is taking place, this ten-nation coalition is going to take a certain cohesiveness on. Now, what does that refer to? Well, we'll come to it in the seventh chapter. So hold on. But don't get lost in the detail. What I want you to see is that there's a gap of time between the 40th and the 31st verse. And again, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that out. All you need to do is keep reading. Look at verse 44. In the days of those kings, these ten kings, by the way, he's going to describe a ten-horned creature as will John in the Revelation. John in the Revelation is going to speak of a ten-nation coalition. 
And I believe that God is setting the stage for that coalition, and we're going to study it. Some incredible things are happening in our lifetime. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it, it itself will endure forever. When did this happen? When will this happen? In the days of those kings. In the days of what kings? In the days of those kings representing ten toes and ten nations in this image. And who is going to do this? The Messiah himself. Remember, he's speaking about the latter days. And it is not by accident that the Apostle John in the 17th chapter of the Revelation speaks of this same ten nation coalition that will be in existence during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's not as strong as the original. It doesn't have the same cohesiveness as the original, but it does have some of that iron strength, and the seed of men will hold it together. And I think part of that is being fulfilled through what we're seeing in the Muslim world. The Muslims have been pouring into the revived, into old, the old European Roman Empire. And they're taking over, and of course, some of the presidents and prime ministers are concerned because they're losing their identity as a people. And of course, the Muslims are not only marrying with each other, they're having babies like we're not. The average Christian has two kids, the average Muslim has seven kids. You wonder why they're growing so fast? You see these refugees coming from the Middle East? How old are most of them? 80% of the Muslims in the world are under the age of 35. Not old men who are coming across the border. These are young men, 18, 19, 20 years of age. And they're multiplying and they're filling Europe up and the mosques are beginning to come up everywhere and they'll come up here in these United States. They say in another 20 years we'll have 50 million Muslims in this nation. Now there are people for whom Christ died. And you need to have compassion on those people. You need to do everything that you can to reach these people for Christ. But there's going to be a cohesiveness through the seed of men in these ten nations. And from this coalition is going to come, as we will see, the Antichrist. And by the way, Daniel will say more about the Antichrist than any book in all of the Bible. You're going to learn more about Antichrist in this prophet than any other single place. So these are the kingdoms of men. But in addition to the kingdoms of man, there is the kingdom of Messiah, beginning now in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the worldly kingdoms, and it will endure forever. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. All of a sudden, at the end of the dream, this statue is going to be moved. And this is why it's so terrifying to the king. Look again at verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And so the stone that is coming and it strikes the statue, not on the head, not on the breast, not on the thighs, not on the legs, but on the feet of clay. And according to verse 45, this stone is detached from a mountain. 
and it's made without human hands, and it's this stone that crushes the feet. And Daniel, just so that you know in your mind that this is not some fantasy, he ends the verse by saying, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, who or what is this stone? Again, the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. This is clearly a reference to Messiah. Beginning in Genesis all the way through the Bible, Messiah is pictured as a stone and repeatedly described even in the New Testament in the same way. In Exodus 17, Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 10 when he recounts for the Corinthians Israel's history. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, he says, And they all, the Jewish people in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And when you come to the New Testament, that verse is quoted five times in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Acts, as well as in 1 Peter. In Romans 9, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Let me read Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So if you follow carefully, beginning in Genesis 49, all the way through the Old Testament, the stone is a picture of the Messiah himself. And the Jewish people, he came to his own, but his own received him not. They stumbled over the cornerstone, but someday they're going to embrace him. But because this is a messianic picture, we learn much about this coming kingdom. And I want to underscore three truths as we close. Number one, its origin. Its origin is supernatural. That's number one. Its origin is supernatural. We read here in verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Again in verse 45, it's repeated, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. This is true of the Lord Jesus. This kingdom is supernatural. Twice over, it's underscored. This stone is cut out without hands, which tells me this is not man-made. Men can make bricks, only God can make a stone. And this kingdom originates with God, whereas the statue, it's man-made. And the one we'll see in the fourth chapter, it's man-made, or in the third chapter. But this is cut out of the mountain, and it originates with God Himself. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name God with us. Emmanuel. And this is why Isaiah 9 can say, a child is going to be born. Fantastic. What's the baby's name? Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's coming a baby who is a man, but he is more than a man. He is the God-man. A baby is coming, and the baby's name is called Mighty God. This king did not originate with man. This kingdom did not originate with man. It is a supernatural kingdom of supernatural origin. Secondly, its power is extraordinary. Not only is its origin supernatural, its power is extraordinary. There has never been a kingdom like the coming kingdom of the Messiah in all of human history. And we will see that these other kingdoms were left to other people. The kingdom of Babylon 
falls to Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia falls to Greece. Greece is relinquished to Rome. But when this kingdom comes, it is a forever kingdom. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And how long will it last when all the other kingdoms of men are destroyed? It says here in this verse, it will endure forever. So it strikes the statue and the image collapses. Now, when did that happen in human history? Was this prophecy fulfilled when Jesus came into the world the first time? Not on your life. He never brought some catastrophic uh, fall on all the governments of the world. Is this a uh, prophecy that is being fulfilled in the peaceful spread of the gospel? Has my post-millennial friends have taught that the world becomes more and more and more Christ-like? Look, history shows otherwise. Clearly not. Is this a prophecy being fulfilled in the church as Calvin and my amillennial friends teach? I don't think so. How did Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning His first coming? Literally. Was there ever a time when Messiah steps on the planet and He crushes all the nations of the world and rooms supremely? Not yet. This prophecy is fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. The whole idea that Messiah comes before His kingdom, what we call pre or before the kingdom, pre-millennialism, is taught right in passages like this. Messiah comes and He sets up His kingdom. It's the only way you can understand this passage and so in Daniel 2, we read it earlier, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed. How? All at the same time. All of the nations of the world are going to become subservient to Jesus Christ. And so Revelation eleven seventeen 17 says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. He will rule not just for a thousand years, but this kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. Look at verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff. And not a trace of them was found. This speaks of the wrath of God on a sinful world. And let me remind you that people who adore this sweet baby at Christmas miss that he is also the righteous judge. And he someday, as Isaiah the prophet will say, you will break them, the nations, with a rod of iron. And you shall shatter them like earthenware. The prophet Malachi says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff, and that day is coming. It will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch, like chaff on the summer threshing floor, Messiah is going to come to establish His kingdom. It is supernatural. It's extraordinary. Finally, its scope is worldwide. Daniel 2.35 says, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and did what? Filled the whole earth. It is a worldwide kingdom. Isaiah 11 says, a day is coming when they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." But the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's coming. Now, how are we going to apply this passage of Scripture? 
Let me give us three applications because God gave us his word not just to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like Jesus Christ. Number one, the Bible teaches the ultimate deterioration of human government. That is clear in the Bible. When God pictures the kingdoms of this world, he pictures them not in an upward spiral, but in a downward dive. And ultimately, the kingdoms of this world are going to come to the Antichrist himself. What we find here is not evolution, but devolution, a downward spiral. God is not saying the nations of this world are going to get better. They will ultimately get worse, like the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness. And Jesus said, when Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom, they will dive down to the days of Lot, days of moral perversion, homosexuality. And Jesus said, describing that final seven-year time, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Daniel is picturing the delicate foundations of all of human government, and it begins with the gigantic statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, but it is all supported on a foundation of mud. Now listen, I want to be a good citizen. And I will put feet to my prayer and I will get out and vote and I will have my voice heard and I want to be salt and I want to be light. But I don't want to invest in my whole life in the tottering governments of this world. Because in the end, they are going to all be destroyed. So make sure you're putting your priority where God puts it on the great commission of His Son. Secondly, I learned from this passage of Scripture that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is not going to be brought about by human effort. It's going to be brought about when Jesus shows up. You know, there on the wall of the United Nations, many of you have been there, there's this wall with this verse on it from Isaiah 2. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spheres into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, the implication of them putting on their wall is that they're saying the United Nations are going to pull this off. I want to tell you there is not enough peacekeeping forces in the world to make this happen. We should be people who are peacemakers. But I want to tell you it is only the Prince of Peace who will pull this off. And this, contextually, in spite of the fact they use it out of context, it's a reference to Messiah himself when he comes and he establishes his kingdom. Third and finally, I want to remind you that this prophecy teaches me that God has everything under control and it's never been out of his control. Listen, this is an awesome prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in 602 B.C. They are a power, but not the world power they will become under his leadership. He reigns for over 42 years. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about the Greeks, and they're nothing but a group of uh, warring tribes down there in the desert land. He dreams about the Romans. And the Romans, they're so, such a small little village at this point down on the Tiber River. And yet Daniel, remember, he's writing the future. 
This is a mind-blowing prophecy. And this is why they attack Daniel. He's writing the future ever before it happens. And I'm reminded by the prophetic nature of God's Word that He has everything under His control. It may appear to you at times that ISIS is winning. It may appear to you time that this whole wicked world is winning, but this passage is teaching there's coming a day when this evil, God-hating world will yield itself to the Messiah itself. They have always clubbed his Abels. They have always mocked his Josephs. They have always stoned his saints. They have always killed his prophets. They have always poked fun at his preachers. They have always slain his people. But God is coming. And He's going to make every wrong right. There's never been a time when this world has not been under the control of God Himself. The smiting stone is coming and He will turn the nations of this world to dust. And He will rule forever and ever and ever. It's good to know your Bible. It's good to know what God says about the future, that you're not driven by headline hysteria, but by the truth of Holy Scripture. Now, we'll pick up the concluding thoughts next time, and we will see that Nebuchadnezzar is awestruck by this prophecy. He's blown away. But does he turn from his false gods, of which he has a multiplicity, to the one true only God? No, he does not. And some of you, you hear the Word of God taught, and it is alive, and it pokes and pricks your heart. But like Nebuchadnezzar, you don't repent. And if Jesus comes today, you will have wished you had because you will be forever lost. Today is the day to be saved. Now our Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. I pray today for someone who is here who has now renounced the gods of this world and given themselves over fully to the Lord Jesus. Help them to see that there's nothing they can do in their own to earn Your approval. Help them to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that He alone can pay for their sin and give them what they need. So many, Father, they are captivated by the worries of this life, by its concerns, by its riches. And they need to stop and pause and put Jesus first. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, You told us that we need not fear that things will get worse because You said these things must happen. So help us to have our minds firmly planted in the truth of Holy Scripture. And help us even in this new week to be faithful with the Gospel. Give us someone this week for whom soul we can reach out to and care for. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message or any of the messages in our study of the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN3 entitled Dreams Do Come True. 
Tomorrow, we'll begin a look at one of the best-known accounts in the Bible in a message entitled, Faith in the Furnace. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.